0: come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In His hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways." so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Amen. Father we thank you for your word and we pray that as we dig into it that you would receive the responses of our heart and be pleased through the merits of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well the psalm that we just read is designed to bring reformation to worship and as such, it's very tightly connected to one of the three purposes of uh, Hanukkah. And as you know, um, our family has enjoyed celebrating Christmas uh, Jewish style, which is uh, Hanukkah. (laughs) And um, it's uh, a festival that is recorded four times in the Old Testament, and every time it's recorded from Moses through to the time of Nehemiah, it had three purposes, and the first was to reform worship, the second was to dedicate the temple and the third was to foreshadow prophetically the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ now it's not one of the major festivals in fact it's not even listed in Leviticus 23 but it was important enough for Jesus to celebrate it in John chapter 10 and if you look at the Gospel of John and see the way that it was crafted around the liturgies of the temple uh, for all of the different festivals including Uh, Hanukkah. you'll see it was obviously important to uh, the writer of that gospel as well. And all four celebrations of Hanukkah that are recorded in the Old Testament were eight-day celebrations pointing forward to the birth of Jesus, that's day one, and pointing forward to the circumcision of Jesus, which was day eight. And interestingly, the first Hanukkah at the uh, dedication of the tabernacle under Moses uh, it was uh, set up on Kislev 25, uh, which is equivalent to December 25. They have a lunar calendar, so it doesn't always line up. But um, that's where we get Christmas from. It's rooted in the Old Testament. But anyway, it, uh, it was set up on Kislev 25, and the first sacrifice was on Nisan 14, which was the day that Jesus uh, was crucified. And if you look at all of the other celebrations, you look at the, um, the uh, purification of the temple from the Baal worship and the rededication of the temple under Hezekiah, it was on Kislev 25. Same date on Nehemiah and the same date under the Maccabees between the Old and, and the New Testaments. Now I'm not gonna get into a theology of, of Hanukkah this morning, that's not my purpose. Uh, But if you're curious, I have written a book on the subject that uh, you may find interesting. It's a free download off of uh, Biblical Blueprints. But my point in bringing it up is that the subject of our psalm is one of the three core purposes of Hanukkah. It speaks of the king of worship, reforming worship, and restoring true worship. So this morning... For our Christmas meditation, we're going to be looking at 10 instructions from the king of worship. Now the first one seems so basic and obvious, does it even need to be uh, stated? It's that the king of worship wants each one of you to sing. But you know what? That was revolutionary in the ancient world. And even today, if you do a study of other religions of the world, most religions do not allow the lay people to sing. Okay, that's something that used to be very unique to Christianity. There are some that are beginning to imitate uh, Christians now, but for them, that's something that the experts do. And even some Christians, they sometimes cringe at the way uh, you know congregations sound in singing. And if all that you were worried about was the external uh, niceties and the technicalities of worship, yeah, you just leave it up to the experts. Let them do it. We'll watch. But that's not what God was about. He wants every one of us uh, to be singing, in part, as a reformation of our own hearts. It is essential to worship, and it changes you. When C.S. Lewis first became a Christian, uh, he really cringed at congregational worship. In fact, he said he hated going to church, because he just didn't like the sound of it. And let me read to you his confession. He said, when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to church. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. And I think some of you could perhaps identify with his feelings because, you know, we admit that not every piece that we pick is a first or second or even a third rate piece of music. When we find better music, we ditch the old and we, we keep adding to our, our repertoire. We're, we're trying to improve. But I think you can identify a little bit with what he said. But he went on, he said, but as I went on, I saw the merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew, and then you realize you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Now his point was that there never will be a time when congregational worship will be perfect or singing will be perfect, but the king of worship wants you to sing despite the fact he knows you're probably not gonna do it all that well. And to me this highlights the fact that there is something beyond quality that is important in our singing. What is that? There's something beyond quality that's important in our singing. Some people cringe at music because it can very easily become a show-off contest between uh, performers, and there is a danger in that. That was a danger that happened actually in the time of Isaiah, in the time of Amos. And when that happens, there can be a temptation to do away with all music. Uh, Over the past 50 years, there have been a lot of music wars in the Western uh, church and these music wars uh, have revolved around things like you know, do we use instruments in worship? Uh, do we have exclusive psalmity, exclusive hymnody, exclusive contemporary '80s music, '90s music, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, there's any number of controversies that can arise over music. In fact, that's one of the chief uh, controversies and debates. Uh, when you look at statistics across the church, people disagree on music, and uh, what has happened is that there's a small movement of churches, thankfully it's only a small movement, but there's a small movement of churches that are so bothered by these controversies uh, over music that they've decided, hey, this is is a no-win situation. Everybody's got their own strong opinions. We're going to opt to have no music whatsoever in worship. Well, that's not reform. (laughs) That's hiding your head in the sand. Verses one and two say, oh, come, let us, I want you to notice that us. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. He's trying to convince them they need to be singing. Now, some Christians uh, have engaged in singing simply out of duty. Uh, They have no joy in this. I had one pastor actually a few years ago. I was kind of shocked by it, but he told me if it wasn't commanded in the scripture, I'd do away with all singing. He just hated it. He just endured the singing in the congregation, and in the process, I think he was robbing his soul of something that God intends to happen as a result Uh, Of our singing it gets us outside of ourselves outside of our our own desires and feelings and and focused in on ministering to the heart of God you know there's that one book can't even think of the name of the uh, the author of that book but the reach of the heart ministering to God it's a lady's name I forget but I'll tell you later maybe but uh, this is what this is what God intends for us to do is to be so focused on God we're saying Lord I don't care what it is, I want to give to you, I don't care what it is that I desire personally, I want to give to you my heart in worship. Anyway, um, in my first pastorate, I had one person tell me over and over again, cut the singing, I've only come to hear the word preached. And uh, it's just a wrong attitude. I'm not going to harp on this. Uh, Maybe I have been harping. But anyway, I I do want to emphasize singing and music is unbelievably important in the Scripture. I counted over 300 references to God calling us to sing and to make music uh, to the Lord. And if you look at the amount of money that was spent in the temple on music, you see this is a very high priority to God. He wants us to adjust our perspectives by what is important to Him. And, and obviously music is very, very important to, to God. Now our church's music team used to spend a lot more time prayerfully uh, preparing for worship, and uh, we're going to be doing more of that in this coming year, but you know there's time factors, there's always a balance you gotta think through. And as talented as our musicians are, we hope to improve our serve in the coming years. So pray for us. It's a tough thing to be a musician, it really is. Uh, You can't please everybody and the things that you're doing and they're trying to serve the Lord in this. So pray that God would give us hearts of worship uh, and uh, that we would be effective in leading you in worship. But the first point here is that God takes a special delight when every one of you pours your all into singing to him. The second principle of worship is that the king of worship wants our emotions engaged and our energies expended. He even calls for loudness in worship. In verse 2, the king of worship says, Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. You know the definition of shout, don't you? It's not what we do. (laughs) At least you look up the dictionary definition of shout. Our congregation really doesn't do that well. Maybe there's Joel and two or three others out here who, who make an attempt at, uh, at doing that, but if you have never shouted in singing, you are missing out on something. You really are. Shouting has an impact on the inner man. In fact, uh, Bill Gothard has written an entire book where he is just looking at the issues of the, all of the scriptures that call us to pray with a loud voice and to sing with a loud voice, and he says that there are blessings that God promises. There are effects that ha, uh, that come upon us when we take God as His word and we say, "Yes, Lord, I cry out to You with all my heart." There is something there that we are not presently experiencing, at least not all of us. So anyway, there's uh, energetic singing. And even beyond that, God has made our bodies and our spirits to profoundly influence each other. God just made us that way. If your spirits are drooping, uh, it's going to manifest itself outwardly. Or if you're tired, exhausted beyond belief, it's going to affect your spirit. If you're crying out with energy, even though you're feeling tired, it'll help your spirit uh, to come (coughs) out of its shell as well. And it's a weird thing that the same people who are not the least bit embarrassed to pour enthusiasm and power into their voices at a football game cringe at the thought of uh, shouting in church. They, they, they just cringe at the idea. And I know some of it's a cultural background, and I can appreciate that. I mean, our family grew up as one of the most reserved families out there. You just would never catch us raising our hands or doing anything like that. So I can understand that. There is some cultural background. But you know what? I don't see any cultural nuance here. Do you Do you see any cultural nuance in this verse here? It sure doesn't seem to me like it says feel free to shout if your culture allows it, but if not, it's okay to mumble your way through the verses of shout to the Lord all the earth, right? It doesn't say that, okay? Now, we'll see in a moment that not every musical piece calls for shouting, and maybe not every worship service uh, even calls for it, but these words indicate that worship can be celebratory, thankful, enthusiastic, energetic, even loud, and in our singing, we can unleash our emotions in ways that are appropriate to the context. Now, speaking of context, let me point out that joy is not the only emotion that is spoken of. If you take a look at verses six through seven, you will see a very dependent humility. And if you look through the other 150 Psalms, you will discover that all of our emotions are engaged before our King. Grief and sadness, satisfaction and contentment, Awe, weeping, joy, exuberance. This past week, uh, Gary um, sent me a quote that I think is just great from John Calvin. But he, he said, there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here in the Psalms represented as in a mirror. And he points out it's not just joy that is expressed in worship. Uh, he, he says, the Holy Spirit has here drawn all the griefs Sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Now, here is the conclusion. Since God has mandated all 150 Psalms to be sung in the worship service. That means that he has authorized all of these diverse expressions of emotion uh, to be authorized within the worship service as well. We need to get used to that. We need to not be uncomfortable uh, with the expression of emotion. Uh, He wants, and I should point out before we go on because there's so much emotionalism out there that we're not talking about emotionalism. Emotionalism is where your emotions are unhinged, they're not being uh, uh, governed by the Word of God, they're just running amok. But we must sanctify all of, God, all of our emotions by God's grace and we must have them lined up to the Word of God. So let's think about that a bit. Just as I encourage our worship team to try to match the speed, intensity, cadence, phrasing, and the feel of music to be appropriate to the words that we're singing, we too as a congregation need to have our minds in gear if we are to uh, 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 sing with the kind of energy and the emotion that's appropriate to the words uh, that, we, that, w- that we are singing. And when we do that, our emotions, our energy levels, our loudness are much more likely to be appropriate. So we shouldn't be sh- shouting when we sing, as the heart pants for the water brooks, so my soul longs for you, O God. No, that's much more of a yearning, a longing of the heart. And we shouldn't be exuberant when we sing, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our fellow man. So shouting doesn't quite fit on that kind of of a hymn or a song. But on the other hand, if we simply mumble the words, the earth shakes at the sound of his voice, we will do injustice to that hymn. And we'll be demonstrating to God that we're really not singing with the understanding as Psalm 47 commands us to do. And actually, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15 commands us, sing with the understanding. Okay? Uh, We we need to be really sensitive to where the words are, are going. And if the congregation... Uh, Can be more sensitive to this as the music team is being trained on this over the next year Uh, Hopefully uh, we will grow in the emotional dimension of our worship in the next few months Advent's a lot more difficult to find a gripping music to But let me read the words of the last song that I just cited And I want you to try to imagine what kind of emotion is appropriate to these words The earth shakes at the sound of his voice the nations tremble before him the idols of men are all falling at the feet of the Lord our God at the feet of the Lord our God now I sure get the feeling from those words that this is a theology that we ought to be really excited about right and then you start reading the first uh, verses of that uh, uh, that uh, first words of that first verse and you begin to realize You know, this is almost like we are warriors on the front line cheering our commander and coming into total agreement with our commander. The Lord is a warrior, fearless is he. The Lord is mighty in battle. His armies outnumber his enemies. When they shout, the strongholds of Satan come crashing down and Babylon is falling, falling down but there is a change of tone and emotion in verse two, and if we shout through that verse, it's not quite right. There's still strength of confidence, there's still momentum, but it says, the Lord is a savior, gracious is he. The Lord is full of compassion. His army is also his family. Now, that's still showing very strong, joyful confidence, but it's more subdued, and the accompaniment should reflect that, and our singing should reflect that, and the point is, That it's not just the music team that needs to think about these kinds of things. All of us need to think about the emotion appropriate to the situation. Let me read to you a song uh, that um, we would sing, I would say, with uh, uh, an attitude of very humble request, not exuberant delight. It's it's got very strong yearning, very uh, much longing in it, and you'd probably sing this a little bit slower. Think about these words. Take me past the outer courts and through the holy place, past the brazen altar. Lord, I want to see your face. Pass me by the crowds of people and the priests who sing their praise. I hunger and thirst for your righteousness, but it's only found one place. So take me in to the holy of holies. Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. So take me in to the holy of holies. Take the coal, cleanse my lips, here I am. It's a totally different feel, isn't it? That's probably, uh, that verse there is a good segue into point three, which says, The king of worship does not want you to be satisfied with anything less than his presence in worship. Verse two says, let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. His presence. You know, Hebrews chapter 12 says that when we are really worshiping, we will be caught up into the very presence of His throne room in the heavenly Jerusalem, and we will be joining as a church with the church of all ages, those who have already gone to heaven, and the angels all around us in adoring and worshiping the incredible majesty of our God. Now, it's just incredible when you read what Hebrews 12 says, what worship uh, should uh, look like. And it takes faith on the part of each worshiper to come into His presence each Sunday. There have been times in public worship where I have sensed that I have come into the very throne room of God and yet I see and talk to other people who felt like, oh wow, it was a total flop and they had not uh, sensed anything whatsoever. There is an individual aspect to this. In fact, I want you to flip with me over to Revelation chapter 3 and we'll um, see how even when a majority of a church is lukewarm, God ushered some people into his very presence. So not all is lost if you are the only one who is putting these principles into practice. Uh, Revelation 3, uh, beginning to read at verse 17, and the first thing that Jesus does here is he points out that there is a majority in this church who didn't even recognize that his presence is absent. Well, that's an oxymoron, that he was absent, okay, or that uh, they even had a need, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So here's a situation where Jesus is outside of the church knocking on the church door, which means his presence is not even... Uh, in the, the worship service uh, that is there. And yet, he says, to those who have ears to hear and who welcome him, he will come in towards that person and commune with him. His presence will be experienced by that person, even if it's not being experienced by anybody else uh, in that worship service. Now, if the rest of the church knew that Jesus, is, Jesus was not present in that worship service, they would probably be mortified. If they knew how ugly their worship appeared to God, they would probably be mortified. And that is exactly what Amos said was happening to his church in in his day. In Amos 5, God says this, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. Wow, I bet that took the wind out of their sails, but they needed to have the wind taken out of their sails because their worship needed reform. And when you read that passage, you'll see there was probably nothing wrong with the technical excellence of the worship service. Probably nothing wrong in that regard. They had all of the money, all the resources, all of the people, all of the experts to have fabulous worship in the temple there. And yet there was something wrong with their worship. It was a congregation who thought their worship was great. But the text says it was all about them and what they enjoyed they were not focused in on pleasing God and seeing Jesus only. You can tell whether Jesus is really the Lord of your worship or whether you are the Lord of your worship by what disappoints you. What disappoints you in worship? For me, I'm disappointed with myself when I fail to come into God's presence, whether it is here, whether it's in some other church that we're visiting when I fail to come into God's presence. And I know I cannot blame the things that are around me. I'm disappointed with myself. I have not come into God's presence uh, in worship. You see, you can have the most excellent music in the world that moves you to tears, that thrills your soul, but if your heart is not poured out before God, the king of worship, is not impressed. Let me just try to illustrate this negatively. When I was up in Canada, there was a small church that I attended that I thought most of the people in that church really touched the throne room of God, really came into God's presence, and yet it was a church of about 45 people. There were no instruments. It was lousy singing. It was lousy preaching. and. I'd look around me in this church and I would see the tears flowing down the faces of these people they're almost oblivious to what's going on around them they were worshiping before the very throne of God and I'm thinking to myself don't they recognize that this is terrible worship no they were worshiping Almighty God they were worshiping it was a heart issue for them And uh, I'm not going to downplay the importance of technical excellence. We're going to be talking about that in a bit, in fact. Uh, But we are talking about coming into his presence by faith. Now, let me illustrate this with Ezekiel 33. That chapter indicates that the worship services led by Ezekiel were so outwardly impressive that huge crowds came to hear him, and they were talking about these worship services during the week. You read the last few verses of Ezekiel 33 and you'll see they're inviting people to church. They're excited about what's going on. They're talking about it. In fact, Ezekiel thought he had a revival on his hands. And God says to him, no, that's not a revival. Do not be impressed because these people are treating the worship service like a music concert. And they're treating your, your preaching like entertainment. But their hearts are far from me. It, it, it's just an incredible incredibly convicting indictment. Their goal in worship was fleshly. It was not about coming into God's presence. It was about an emotional experience. Now, we've already seen, I'm not downplaying emotion at all. But emotions and emotionalism can become idolatry if it is, a me, is an end in itself, rather than the unleashing of our heart in devotion and service to God so we're not talking about emotionalism the bottom line is that only the Spirit of God can enable us to come into his presence like we really should that's why Jesus said we must worship in spirit and in truth you read the Bible what it says about prayer It says we must pray in the Spirit and yet you look at the, 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 the scriptures it says that our our prayers need to be saturated by Scripture. Every part of our prayers need to be uh, Scripture based. So it's spirit and truth. It says we must sing in the spirit. But you look in Ephesians and Colossians and it says when we sing, we need to have the word of Christ uh, dwelling in us richly in those songs. So word and truth, the power of the spirit and the alignment of our worship to the truth of, of God's word. Philippians 3.3 3 says that we are to worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, so there is the focus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Too much worship has confidence in the flesh. But when your focus is on the king of this universe, it all changes. It all changes. Years ago, I read a book by Tommy Tenney called The God Chasers, And though it does have some theological errors, I think its central theme is is right on. And let me read from the description on the back cover. It says, what is a God chaser? A God chaser is an individual whose hunger exceeds his reach. A God chaser is a person whose passion for God's presence presses him to chase the impossible in hopes that the uncatchable might catch him. A child chases a loving parent until suddenly the strong arms of the father enfold the chaser. The pursuer becomes the captive, the pursued, the captor. Paul put it this way. I chase after that I may catch that which apprehended me. Philippians 3.12. Job was a God chaser. He said, oh, that I knew where I might find him. David was one. He said, my soul followeth hard after thee. Paul was one too that I may know him the passionate paths of God chasers can be traced across the pages of history from Moses the stutterer David the singer and Paul the itinerant preacher and countless others who share one common bond an insatiable hunger to know their Lord this psalm says that worship is all about him that's where our focus should be And brothers and sisters where there is no presence there is no worship. All it is is a bunch of sounds bouncing off the ceiling. They're not getting past the ceiling. Without the presence of the Lord, uh, it is really just a a, a futile exercise that we're going through. And where there is no longing for God's presence, we have been robbed of the very essence. The essence of worship is not about the externals. Technicalities are important. We, We work on those. But the essence of worship Is God himself and this psalm wants us to be enraptured with God and the last verses of this psalm indicate how displeased God is when we are satisfied with anything that is without him anything that is without him so here's the question do you hunger for God Do you long to experience more of His presence? We must enter into worship as God chasers. Let me read that again. And I want you to notice the personal dimension. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Verse 6, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Make that your goal. The fourth principle is that God calls for musical instruments in worship and that can be seen in the word Psalms in verse two. Let us shout joyfully to him with Psalms. Now, the Hebrew word for Psalms is mizmorot, and if you were to look that up in the various Hebrew dictionaries, which I have several of, you would find that it means a song accompanied by musical instruments. It's not used of unaccompanied uh, songs, okay? In fact, sometimes it can mean just instrumental music, but any time you have sing that's associated, like it is here, with uh, this word, it means to sing a song accompanied uh, with musical instruments. And I bring this up because it's so easy for the church to swing to extremes. Because music has become so fleshly in some circles, there are many churches that want to do away with the use of any musical instruments whatsoever. They have determined that they are going to worship, they say, we're worshiping God in spirit. They've been so offended by the flesh, and you can understand it. I can appreciate where they're coming from, but they have been so offended by the fleshly, it's disgusted them. And there's a growing movement over the last decade. There's a number of books that have come out saying that Any use of musical instruments in a New Testament church is a sin. And I'm almost finished writing a major rebuttal of that uh, strange, uh, strange thesis. But you do not reform fleshly worship by ignoring the commands of the Bible. The king of worship commands, awake, lute, and harp. Praise the Lord with the harp. Praise him with the timbrel. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. And there are many other commands that we must worship in the corporate setting with musical instruments. Every time the Bible commands us to sing a psalm, just keep in your mind that the various Hebrew words for psalm and the Greek word for psalm in the New Testament, all of them mean a song accompanied by musical instruments. The very command to sing a psalm is a command to use musical instruments. <clears throat> and uh, there's so many uh, scriptural commands we don't uh, really need to go over them. And um, even the scriptures that talk about instruments that are loud, uh, these instruments are tools that are supposed to be servants to the words. They're supporting the words. They're never overwhelming uh, the words. And over the next year, I'm going to be doing some training of the music teams on how musical instruments can serve the words better. But the basic point here is they can be very, very useful in undergirding true worship. We can't undo those commands simply because instruments have been abused. The fifth principle that the psalm calls for reformation in is the use of psalms. Now, it's not, the scripture does not call for an exclusive use of psalms, but we must not neglect the hymn book, that the king of worship has specially crafted and designed and given to the church as a gift we would slight him we would insult him if we fail to use that and I believe that we need to sing all of the Psalter all 150 Psalms. and when you start doing that in faith you will be transformed Uh, and when I first started singing from the Psalms um, I was in my early 20s and I really Uh, did love the Lord and I wanted to be totally honest and sincere in my heart when I was singing uh, hymns and songs and so I had developed a habit that when there was a verse that I did not agree with I would not sing that verse or I would hold a mental reservation well all of a sudden I caught myself doing that with the Psalms and I realized no way to shake these are inspired I'm the one who needs to change And I found myself over the next two or three years as I'm singing these psalms, being changed from the inside out. My theology got changed. It began impacting my character. Why? It is a two-edged sword that slices into our soul. It brings healing balm. It helped take me through an incredible period of depression that I went through. But there is a power in singing the psalms that you do not have uh, with anything else. And I admit that the tunes of some psalms are not that great. And as we find better tunes to the psalms that we sing, we'll ditch the old, we'll bring in the new, but some have suggested that we sing fewer psalms. Well, sorry, that's not an option. It is simply not an option. Listen to the following admonitions from the king of worship. 1 Chronicles 16, verse nine, sing to him, sing psalms to him. Psalm 105, verse two, sing to him, sing psalms to him. And there's a bunch of those in the Old Testament. I'll skip to the new. Ephesians five nineteen, speaking to one another in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and I want you to notice the order and the emphasis here he starts with Psalms that's the inspired hymn book of God he moves to hymns which connects us with the church historical he goes on to speak of songs uh, spiritual songs which uh, deals with that which is more contemporary but anyway he says singing and making melody in your heart to the lord colossians 3:16 let the word of christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the lord so even the hymns and the songs that we are singing need to be saturated in the word of god if uh, if we're to obey this verse And they definitely need to be sung by the grace of the Holy Spirit. James 5.13, let him sing psalms. Now this psalm does not mention it, but there are a number of other psalms that command us not only to sing the psalms, but to sing a new song to the Lord. So we not only value the old, we also value the new in each generation that that the Lord has brought. But one of the patterns that we have established in this church right from the beginning, 1999, is that every worship service has to have at least one psalm, at least one hymn, and at least one uh, contemporary piece. Now various services will emphasize one over the other, but the emphasis that you see in the scripture is psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I think it's really important that we try to maintain the kind of balance that you see uh, in the scripture. Okay, the sixth principle is that, the, that Jesus, the king of worship, is jealous for God's glory, does not want to share his glory with another. Let's read verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land." Now, the word for, at the beginning of verse 3, gives the reason for worship. And it's not a man-centered reason. It's a God-centered reason. Why should we pay attention to these ten principles of worship? For, or because, you could translate it, because the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods, and His hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed The dry land the reason we are to worship is because God is the king the creator the sustainer the owner of all things I mean our worship should be the natural response of a creature to its creator it's unthinkable that creatures would not joyfully worship their creator but it's also unthinkable that we would not try to imitate just like kids imitate their their father you know that we imitate Uh, we are to imitate God at at the beginning of the service I pointed out that we are imitating God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit when we adore and praise the perfections of each person now God does not command us because He's selfish Uh, he needs nothing it's impossible for him to be selfish the flow of God the Father's heart is toward the Son and toward the Spirit the flow of Jesus's heart is toward the Father and toward the Spirit and the same is true Uh, of the Holy Spirit we are God-centered because God is God-centered and God is God-centered in a very unselfish way very unselfish way the Father praises and gives all things to the Son out of love for the Son and the Son gives all things to the Spirit and praises the Father with the same sacrificial love and the Spirit's constantly pointing away from himself for eternity past they rejoiced in each other and the Holy Spirit in this psalm calls us to have the same infectious praise and adoration of the perfections of each person of the Godhead. The moment we begin introducing other reasons for worship, we begin to uh, drift into a man-centered approach and it spoils everything. Seeker-sensitive services turn everything upside down. Worship is not primarily for our benefit. Now I'll hasten to say we do benefit, when we follow God's advice and when we, when we worship Him. It's not primarily for evangelism. And 1 Corinthians, there's one passage that says, when we're truly focused on God, not on evangelism, when we're focused on God, this person will say, God is truly among you, he'll fall down and worship God. So it's not like there isn't benefit, but where is the focus? That's the question. D. James Kennedy tried to illustrate why the Bible and the Bible alone should define everything in worship with this illustration. He said, Most people think of the church as a drama with the minister as the chief actor, God as the prompter, and the laity as the critic. What is actually the case is that the congregation is the chief actor, the minister is the prompter, And God is the critic, and perhaps a better way of saying it is that God is the audience, the one that we are doing everything for. It is in recognizing that worship is for God that we realize, hey, maybe we ought to ask God how he wants to be worshiped instead of asking each other, right? Verse 7 repeats this God-centered reason, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We have been ushered by grace into a love relationship with the Trinity that puts off all selfish criticisms just like C.S. Lewis did, and we are denying the very purpose of our existence when we are not God-centered in our worship. When you are God-centered, man, you can put up with the person who's singing off-key right next to you. Okay? In fact, that may be, I don't know, but that may be one of the purposes why God has everybody singing instead of the professional singing is to test us to see whether we're really God-centered or whether we're man-centered in our worship. The seventh call to reformation of worship is that the king of worship calls us to worship him with our bodies and not just our souls. And some of you out there are modeling to us uh, a little bit of how to do that. But let's think about the act of kneeling with our bodies. Verse 6 says... Let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Now that's a switch in mood from verses 1 through 3. Now in other Psalms that are describing the kind of worship in verses 1 through 3, it would be the exact opposite. Your head would be lifted up, your hands would be lifted up to heaven, but there's a switch in verses 6 through 7 that reflects a devotion to a master and humility before God. And so there's, there's bowing down, there's kneeling. Now I've had reformed people tell me, oh yeah, you can't kneel, that's Roman Catholic idea to kneel. And my response is, so, do you avoid everything that Roman Catholics do even if it's in the Bible? You know, that's not being governed by the Bible, that's being governed by what other people do or do not do. If we really believe that we must follow the Bible's instructions on worship, then we have no option. We must use our bodies in all of the varied ways that Scripture calls us to use them. For example, Scripture calls us to raise our hands. And people, boy, they, 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 the, the, the color drains out of their face, and they, we can't do that. that that's, what, we're, that's what charismatics do. And I'm thinking, so? <laughs> you know? Uh, don't allow what other people think, what other people do, to drive your worship. It's the Scriptures that should drive our worship, not fear of man. Uh, Psalm 134:2, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. I actually had somebody tell me one time, well, I lift the hands of my heart to God, implying he didn't have to lift his physical hands uh, to God. But you know what? Here's what Scripture says. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Lamentations 3, verse 41. That's heart and hands. That that verse is indicating that lifting your heart to God is not a substitute for lifting your hands to God. And why is that the case? It's called nonverbal communication. Our body is supposed to accurately reflect what is going on in our spirit. What what am I communicating? Just think about this. What am I communicating to you when I'm singing like this? Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. You know, if I'm just slouching and yawning my way through a song, what am I communicating? I'm communicating the exact opposite of what those words are saying. In other words, I'm a liar. My communication is lousy, and it means that I need to start practicing getting my body to be a servant to my spirit and to line up uh, with its nonverbal communication with what the words are coming out of my mouth, okay? and I've got a, a worksheet that goes through all of the Bible references that talk about nonverbal communication. Our eyes communicate, our facial expressions communicate, our neck muscles, our, our arms, our bodily movement. They're all communicating in some way. We need to understand what it is that our bodies are, are communicating. Uh, they may be communicating something that uh, is very unglorifying to God. You know, if God's glory cloud was in this room, I doubt that some of us would be communicating with our bodies the same way that we would. Maybe that's not even a fair example because if God's glory cloud was in this room, I probably wouldn't be communicating. I'd be flat on my face and couldn't say a word. So, but I think you get the point, okay, that there does need to be some coherence between body and spirit. People talk about bowing their hearts before the Lord. Well, that's great. We do need to have genuine heart humility, but our body needs to communicate accurately where our spirit is at as well. Otherwise, our body is saying something totally different than what our spirit is saying. When people come into worship and they look around at you, it doesn't matter that you think and you feel like your heart is totally engaged in worship to God if your face is saying, boring and your body is saying, I really don't want to be here, you are powerfully communicating to your children something you probably don't want to be communicating to them. And let me tell you something, your nonverbal communication may have more of an impact upon your children than your words do. And by the way, think about your children's uh, nonverbal communication as well. When they're slouching, what are they communicating? We, we shouldn't just be uh, ignoring the body What are they communicating? I think it exposes a lot of what's going on uh, in the heart. When my kids were young, we, we trained them very carefully on this and we would not let our kids get away with outward obedience but with a scowl on their face because that scowl was revealing something going on inside the heart that was not good. And actually, they were communicating quite well. <laughs> they were communicating, I'm obeying you, but I sure don't like it. Okay? So we knew we had to work on the inward heart. We've got to think about these things as parents. There, there's got to be a connection. We, we have been too infected by Western thinking, which is a lot of times Greek dualist thinking, where we divide between the body and the spirit, And we think so long as we're doing something in the spirit, the body is immaterial. In fact, the body is a bad thing. We don't even think about that. That's not biblical. God made us to be unified wholes. And by the way, even the way you dress communicates as well. So there's lifting up of heart and hands. The scripture also speaks of bowing of heart and hands and knees. Uh, Paul talked about the humility that he had before God, but that was not enough not just in his heart, he said for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3 verse 14. So it's not just heart, it's in the knees. And I think some of you white Anglo-Saxons have been too infected by your cultural background, okay? And I'm I'm part of the boat, I'm pointing the finger at myself. It's so hard for me to get out of my shell. If you see uh, the way that I worship now, you'd say wow, Phil's changed a lot over the last 15 years but I'm still working on it, I am not where I want to be in terms of nonverbal communication. I understand the scriptures, so I'm not trying to be judgmental, I'm saying I'm in the same boat. So if you're disabled, okay, I'm not talking about you in terms of kneeling, you know, my mom's got a good excuse, Ken's got a good excuse, but for most of us, we should not be thinking what do other people think about me if I'm raising my hands or if I'm kneeling on the ground or if I'm prostrate on the ground forget about that just ask yourself what does God want in public worship anyway our bodies are an important part of worship and I did have a note here that says that what we do with our bodies powerfully impacts the way we feel internally it's just the way it is God made us to be this way for example, in my private devotions, when I am kneeling with my forehead on the ground, I feel different just by the act of kneeling. I feel different in my spirit that when I am lifting my hands and my head toward heaven. My body affects my spirit. That's the way God intended it to be. So don't just say, oh, well, this is a cultural thing and... Phil, get over this and we'll go on with our lives again. No, I want you guys to be working on this. For the rest of this coming year, I want us to be improving our worship. Since we are called by God to love Him with all of our mind, that means our minds need to be in gear when we are singing and in the preaching in every part. Since we are to love God with all of our hearts, our emotions need to be in gear. Since we are to love God with all of our soul, that means that the relational aspect of us needs to be in gear in the public worship. Since we are to love God with all of our strength, that means our bodies need to be in gear. So there may be times when you are so awed by the presence of God, you feel you've got to kneel. Right in the middle of a song, you've got to kneel. Even though it's not the kneeling section of this thing, you're going to think, well, what are they going to think of me by kneel? Kneel. Go ahead and kneel, Psalm 95, verse 6. There may be other times that our heart is so joyful you feel compelled to dance, and people will glare at you for dancing. Hey, just think to yourself, Psalm 150, verse 4. Or you may be led to say, amen, amen, or some other kind of verbal agreement, Nehemiah 8, verse 6. Other forms of worshiping with the body mentioned in Scripture are clapping. Psalm 47, verse 1. Does that make you nervous? (laughs) okay standing psalm 33 verse 8 lying prostrate on your face revelation 7 verse 11 and that's a public worship service by the way bowing revelation 19 4 lifting up one or more hands toward heaven psalm 63 verse 4 now i've only given one example for each of those But my point is, if you read through the scripture, you will see that the Bible is absolutely loaded with references to worshiping with our bodies. Have I beat on this horse long enough? (laughs) Are you getting the point? We've got to get out of our shells and worship God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and uh, our mind. And uh, since it's a call to uh... reformation of worship it might be helpful for you to have your whole family practice appropriate bodily postures in your daily family worship that's a place where you can start practicing without getting nervous And the more you do it the more it's going to seem you know totally normal to you okay the eighth principle is that god's word calls for changes of mood within worship services in other words worship is not one flat expression of mood whether it's high or low or whatever. It's not just one flat expression of mood. We've already touched on this briefly but I do want you to notice the change in mood from verses one through five which is jubilant to verses six through seven which is more subdued with a worshipful reverence. It's appropriate to bowing and kneeling to verses eight through 11 which is somewhat sorrowful. Maybe not even that much fun and that's all in the same psalm now our worship usually but not always reflects a a wide variety of mood usually it's a lot less variety during Advent season it's just it's it's very hard to construct but depending on the theme of the service there may be mood differences from one service to another and I bring this up because there's a lot of teaching out there that says that you have to progress in a certain kind of mood in a certain kind of order in order for you to be biblical. And uh, let me point out that there were entire services in the Old Testament that were mellow, and there were entire services that were jubilant. More often it appears that there's a mixture like we see here, moving from praise to worship to meditation to a call to change and repent to commitment. In fact, some people structure their whole worship services based on this song. That's okay. That's okay, but I would point out that even this order is not hard and fast. In Nehemiah 9, you find the reverse order of what you find here. In 2 Chronicles 5, it seems that the communion came near the beginning of the worship service and the praise came afterward. In Nehemiah 8, you have yet another order where the preaching and singing come first, the communion meal comes at the end. So even though I'm saying we need to be used to the idea that different parts of the service are going to range in the mood that they express I don't want us to become legalistic and say everybody's got to do it the way Dominion Covenant Church does it. No, God has given parameters, but within those parameters, there's a lot of variety and there's a lot of freedom that God has given. The ninth principle of reform that was being taught by this psalm is that the king of worship called for inner heart devotion. Now, obviously, we've talked about this through all the previous points, haven't we? Uh, But what God was concerned about in verse 8 was calloused heart. He says, do not harden your hearts. And it's so easy for that to happen. It's so easy to allow our frustrations to make us get hard-hearted and not get anything out of worship. Let me tell you something. As long as you've got a human up here, and as long as you've got humans on the music team, and as long as you are unglorified humans, none of us are glorified yet, I don't think, um, you know, that we're waiting for that. You're going to have mistakes and issues and problems and things that are disappointments that you could very easily harp on and gripe on. You look at 1 Corinthians 10. He goes through all kinds of Old Testament passages uh, where the people were murmuring and grumbling, and they're looking at the glass half empty. They're completely ignoring all of the beautiful, wonderful things that God has done, and it says that they... Yeah, let me see if I can if I wrote down what they they said but um, anyway it ruined their worship is the basic point so if you can when you're eating chicken glory in the fact you got so much meat and forget about complaining about look at all these bones bone bone bones everywhere bones no you put the bones aside and you focus on the meat you eat the corn and you don't focus on the fact that you got a huge corn cob there, okay? That's the key to joy in worship because there's always going to be down points in any worship service anywhere in the world that you go, right? So if we can focus in on the good, I think we'll be much better. What he was concerned about in verse 10 was people who tended to go astray in their hearts. The heart of the matter in worship is the matter of the heart. When my heart has been right with God, I have been able to enter into God's presence with many different styles of worship from the ultra-conservative to the charismatic. It was not externals that made the difference for me. It was where my heart was at, okay? Christ blasted the Pharisees in these words. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So it doesn't matter how well you sing. And pray and follow a liturgical forum, whether it's high or low. If our hearts are far from God, he will not receive the worship. Worship is an issue of the heart. If your heart is not right, your worship will be wasted. Musicians must come to the worship with hearts prepared, cleansed, confessed, ready to worship God. Or God says in the book of Amos, and Isaiah as well, that he will be revolted by the worship pretty strong words that he gives he'll be revolted same is true for me as a leader and other leaders and those who are leading in prayer and those of you who are out there worshiping when our hearts are not right God is offended there really is an issue of the heart the last principle of reform is the regulative uh, principle of worship and because you're so familiar with it, I'm not gonna spend uh, much time on it but I have summarized this point in the outline as the king of worship calls for doing things his way in worship. Now it's only hinted at in the psalm, but verse 10 has that phrase in it, and they do not know my ways. They do not know my ways is one of many phrases that should drive us back to the scripture and not to the traditions of man for how we worship. And the Bible says a whole lot more about worship than even the RPW advocates are willing to admit. It speaks to cadence and flow and energy and sound and lighting and all kinds of stuff, even overhead projectors. Well, not quite overhead projectors, they plastered you know, these, this, this huge wall of rock with whitewash, and they wrote on it. But it was like an overhead projector. Okay? It, gives, it gives us principles for all kinds of things in the Bible, if you will dig, if you will look into it. But here it says, they do not know my ways. Christ said, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God doesn't want anything that's a commandment of men in worship. This is why this church is committed to... Um, following the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible in our worship. Now, have we arrived? Oh, no. We have not arrived. We're still a long ways from where we should be. In fact, <laughs> the Bible says so much about worship, I sometimes, I sometimes say, oh, Lord, we are so far. That's why we have to depend upon Christ, be secure in Christ, because if our hearts are right and we're confessed and we say, Lord, I know it's feeble, but please receive it from my hand, he'll be delighted to receive it because of the merits of Jesus. Now, in conclusion, I should note that finding God in worship is not guaranteed by simply coming to church. It's a blessing we must seek with all of our hearts. Verse 11 says, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. So here was a people that did not have the joy of God's blessing and presence. Hebrews 4 interprets this, that they had not learned how to enter into God's Sabbath rest. They never learned true worship. And while there is a lot that you can debate about the meaning of these words, I think it's clear none of us can manipulate God's presence by how we craft a worship service. It's impossible. Don't think if only we could craft this worship service right God would show up. No, that is not where it's at at all. Um, It's thinking wrongly. This is a call to each of us. Music team, congregants, each one of us must be God chasers who long for him more than we long for the benefits that come from him. So our goal in life must be worship with a sincere heart. God does not promise his presence to those who apathetically show up and listen. No, worship's incredibly active. It takes energy, thought. The Bible says you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 4.29. And God repeats that promise in Jeremiah. He says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So during this coming year, be God chasers. Amen? Amen? Be God chasers. Father, we want to chase after you, to say with David, my soul followeth hard after you. Father, even as the disciples uh, asked you, Lord, teach us to pray. We say, Father, teach us to pray, teach us to sing, teach us to worship, teach us to give to you everything that you deserve to honor you with our bodies, with our minds, with our emotions, with everything that is in us. Father, teach us, Worship, and may you be glorified in the improvements that we make over this coming year. And we pray this in Christ's name, Amen.